The book of Hebrews is such a substantial piece of work to get through in a sermon series, and and we have to bite off big chunks even if we're going to complete this by the end of June. And so as we look at taking on the entire third chapter, uh, we do so uh, needing to summarize certain portions and to magnify others in order to get through in a reasonable amount of time. So what I want to do is I want to summarize the two main sections of Hebrews. The first in chapter 3 are verses 1 through 6. And in verses 1 through 6, the main theme or the main point being made is that Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus is greater than one of the greatest Old Testament figures. He's better than Moses. Now this is a pattern throughout this book where Jesus is compared to a number of Old Testament heroes and other cherished elements of Judaism. And the view in doing that is to establish for the readers the supremacy of Jesus Christ in all things. In chapter 1 and chapter 2, we saw Jesus being presented to us as being superior to angels. And now in chapter 3, he's presented as being greater than Moses. Now you may recall from the opening message in this series that there's a very good reason for why the author of Hebrews makes these kind of comparisons. The author was writing to a group of Jewish Christians who had suffered tremendous hardship as a result of their allegiance to Jesus. And there is evidence even within this book to suggest that the persecution of these Jewish Christians was so severe that some who had come to profess faith in Jesus ended up retreating and going back to Judaism. So much of what we find in this book is aimed at warning the readers of the dangers of falling away. The dangers of retreating back to where you came from and compelling them to remain aligned with Jesus, who is better, better than any person, better than every element from the earlier covenant. So we summarize Hebrews 3, 1 to 6 with the heading, Jesus is better than Moses. I would summarize the remainder of the chapter, verses 7 through 19, with this heading. A call to perseverance. A call to perseverance. And then you can sew these two aspects or these two sections together by saying this. Since Jesus is better than Moses, since Jesus is superior to every element from the earlier covenant, Therefore, make every effort to stay close to Jesus and to not fall away. Now, some of you might be looking at that. You might be looking down at your Bible and you think, that's an excellent summary, Pastor. Thank you. Let's go to lunch. Let's get to the courtyard. But there's, there's, I do want to detail some of the passage before us. Because I think most people in this room have come to realize by experience that staying close to Jesus is easier said than done. 
You expect me to get up on a Sunday morning and to exhort you, stay close to Jesus. Abide in Him. Connect to Him. Stay close to Him. You expect that. But we know through experience that is easier said than done. So I want to spend much of our time this morning thinking through in practical terms what can be done to keep ourselves and to keep one another close to Jesus. Look at the very first verse. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters, you who share in a heavenly calling. Again, the word therefore points us backwards in the text where the author highlights our solidarity with Jesus. But lest some of us begin to think that the Christian experience is simply a matter of Jesus and me, there is a progression in the text where the new emphasis becomes our solidarity with one another. So earlier on, it's all about our connection to Jesus, our brother. But now there's a new emphasis on our solidarity with one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. You who share in a heavenly calling. Notice the qualifier in the text. We're not simply brothers and sisters in Christ, but it says we're holy brothers and sisters in Christ. What makes us family is that we share this same experience of having all our sins forgiven in Christ. We have this common experience whereby God sets each of us apart for service in His kingdom. The greeting, quite literally in the Greek, is to set apart ones. It's to you who are set apart for God. You who have a particular function for God. And, and your commonality makes you members of the same family. And the solidarity we have with one another is a solidarity that extends to our mission. It's a solidarity that extends to our purpose. In other words, every church should be doing the same thing. Every church should be trying to do the same thing. Because we have the same God, the same Savior, and the same purpose. We are said to share a heavenly calling. So we may differ in method. We may differ in style. But we ought never to differ from other churches in purpose and in the object of our worship. The unity of the church has a unique basis and it pursues an agenda, a common agenda that is forged in heaven. It is a heavenly calling. What this means is that church unity, and, and this is where I, I need to be careful because if you visit church to church to church, You'll see unity based on things that really don't exist in Scripture as the basis for unity. Unity in the church should never be based upon one's socioeconomic status. So if you go to a local church 
and every single person in the church is of the same socioeconomic status, we should ask some questions. And maybe the only way in which that would be acceptable is if it was in a neighborhood where everyone was in the same socioeconomic status. That should never be the basis of gathering a church and saying we're, you are unified. Nor should we ever forge together a local congregation based on one's ethnic background. And yes, the hypocrisy of what I just said is not lost on me. This church was founded 205 years ago by Scottish people. And I can say that because I'm a MacPhail. You know, it was, it was those that I have a connection to in my ethnic background. This church was forged by those who had a common ethnic background. But that is not the proper basis for bringing a group of people together under the banner of Christ. And by extension, we should be suspicious if we ever walk into a church and every person in the church has the same color skin. Now I realize that's a sensitive subject to touch on, but I can do so in this place because we're more like the United Nations here than most congregations I've ever been a part of. So, But this is something we ought to have an eye for. The basis for unity is not our, our social uh, status, it's not our ethnic background, it's not the color of our skin, nor is it even our preferences for worship. Uh, some of you who worship here regularly know we wrestle with the style part of worship. Do we do contemporary or do we do traditional? Do we sing holy, holy, holy every Sunday or do we get a guitar and drums up here? And the fact that we wrestle with this and the fact that we debate over this is actually healthy because it means there's some diversity here. If everyone here despised drums, I'd be nervous. And if everyone here despised singing holy, 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 I'd be nervous. The basis for Christian unity is none of those things. The basis for Christian unity is unique. It's the fact that we share a common Savior. And we've been saved the same way, by the blood of the Lamb. And now we share a heavenly calling. We share a purpose that is significant and unique. Another way I could put this, we're not just a bunch of people who belong to a religious club. I suspect that over the course of this church's history, there might have been times where people thought, well, St. Andrew's Kirk is just another one of my clubs. I go to a lot of clubs. In Nassau, it gives you a lot of options. You can belong to a tennis club, to the golf club, to the sailing club. You can belong to Rotary. You can join a lodge. You can belong to a sorority. You can belong to a group that is a nature enthusiast. You can join a group where there's activism in rescuing animals in distress. There are all kinds of clubs. And there's nothing wrong with being a part of those clubs. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. The mistake we make is if we think this is just one of our clubs. Well, I go to the sailing club on Wednesday, and I go to Rotary on Friday, and I go to the church on Sunday. This is not one of our clubs. 
This is a unique institution ordained by God, carrying out a mission that has a heavenly origin. This is different. This is not a religious club. What's different about it? What unites us is the reality that the blood of the Son of God has washed away our sins. That's what unifies this group. We have this common experience where the blood of Jesus Christ has washed away our sins by faith and we gather to give Him praise. Seriously, what club can compete with that? Again, I don't want you to go home saying, Brin's against clubs, you know, he's pressuring me to quit my club. No! Just don't ever think of this as one of your clubs. No social club can compete with what we're doing here. There's a special internal kind of solidarity that is forged in heaven. It has a unique calling. And everything we're supposed to do flows out of the very first exhortation in chapter 3. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters, you who share a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. Consider Jesus. There may be 1,000 things that are good and important for the Christian to engage in. But I would assert that every important Christian duty must flow from this one duty. Consider Jesus. Consider Jesus. And the English doesn't do justice. The English translation does not effectively capture the intent of the original Greek. Let me give you an example. Real life example. My wife Allie often says to me something like this. Bryn, you ought to consider having a salad with that hamburger. You ought to consider having a salad with that hamburger. Something she regularly says. And I give that consideration for about four seconds before I reject it. The Greek here is far more emphatic than that. When it says consider Jesus, the word means to apply your mind carefully. It means to scrutinize. It means to inspect. It means to think thoroughly. The exhortation is for those who have experienced solidarity with Jesus to then fixate on Jesus. Sometimes we tease people. I get teased all the time, usually by members of my family, uh, that I have obsessive compulsive disorder. And that's just uh, an unkind way, or maybe it's a kind way, I don't know. It's a way of saying, Bryn, you fixate on things. And it's right, I deserve the teasing. I fixate on all kinds of silly things that I ought not to fixate. And maybe you have a personality like mine, and you're prone to fixate in this way. But if you're prone to fixate on silly things, you at least know what is, what is required. The level of concentration, the level of commitment, the level of time investment. And now I want you to take all those quirks that you may share with me in fixating on silly things and understand that the call here is to fixate on Jesus. 
spend so much time thinking about him. So much time thinking through what it means to be his brother. And the author of Hebrews gives us this exhortation because he sees it as a primary means of falling away. Remember what's going on here. Jewish Christians are saying, this is too much for me. The commitment's too high. The persecution's too great. There's, there's too much suffering involved. I've got to get out of here. And so the author says there's a way to guard against bailing on the Christian faith. And the way to guard against it is by fixating on Jesus. There is a persistence implied here that I think is very important for the individual Christian. In our day, we often hear Christians talk about having a devotional time. Or we hear Christians talk about having a quiet time with God. Usually this time set apart for God or quiet time, usually it is at the beginning of the day or at the end of our day or perhaps even both. And in this we give special attention to Bible reading or to reading a theological book or special attention to prayer. Now, no, I'm not going to say anything negative about Bible reading and prayer in your private time. I want to commend these things, and I want to commend those who practice them. But I do want to share a concern I have with those who portion out quiet time and, and devotional time. And here's my caution. That we simply view our time with God in prayer and or reading as another checkbox before we move on with our day. Maybe you're an A-type personality with me, like me, and you make a list of all the things you aim to do in a day. And next to each item is a checkbox. Hopefully I'm not the only crazy person who has such a list. But some of us, I worry, that devotional time or time with God or Bible reading simply becomes another box to check. So we spend a blissful 40 minutes with the Lord in the morning, but we don't even think of Him once during the course of the workday. Or we don't think of Him once through the entire day of our schooling. Friends, this ought not to be. Because we cannot and should not compartmentalize our devotion to Christ. As though it were another checkbox in our day. I want to challenge you in the way I see the passage challenging us. That we must sustain our devotion to Jesus over the course of an entire day and by extension over the course of our entire life. So this is the big question I want to put to you this morning and the question that I want resolved. Probably every person in this room, or nearly everyone, is good at devoting yourselves to Jesus from time to time. Now might be a good time. You're all here. You could have been at one of the clubs. You could have been out in the ocean. It's a beautiful day. But you've come here because you understand the value of having devotion to God. But how do you sustain that? Because if I went past 11.45, I'd be getting emails. You'd be saying, I cannot sustain being here beyond noon. So, and again, I have no design to extend us till noon today, in case you're worried. But it's a real question. 
how are we to sustain our devotion to Christ? Because the call to fixate on Jesus is a call to give persistent attention to who he is and to what he has called us to do. So we don't simply pursue Christ-likeness first thing in the morning and then forget about it. We don't simply pursue Christ-likeness on Sunday morning when we gather for worship. We want to sustain our pursuit of Christ-likeness through every hour of every day. And you're asking, mission impossible. How is it possible to sustain my devotion to Jesus? How do we stay close to Jesus? How do we fixate on Jesus so that we don't fall away? I want to propose two points of action or two applications. The first is so simple. It's so simple. We sustain our proximity to Christ by pleading to Him and asking Him for help. So the minute you feel yourself drifting, the minute you feel yourself not being into it, the minute you you see and sense your affections for Christ and for the things of Christ waning, say, Lord, you, you know how I'm feeling. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. Restore to me my hunger and my thirst for you. I'm begging you, Lord. I'm not feeling it, but I want to. In Hebrews 2.18, last week's sermon, we were reminded Jesus is not simply sympathetic toward our struggles, but it said He is able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus is able to help us when we're tempted, when we're struggling, when our affections are waning. He's able to help those who are drifting. Again, what is required is supplied. Supplied by our brother, Jesus Christ. Make your plea to Him. doesn't have to be original. Often I sing the words to Jesus, the words of that beloved hymn, I need thee every hour. I need thee every hour. Stay thou nearby. Temptations lose their power when thou art nigh. I need thee every hour in joy or pain. Come quickly and abide or life is vain. We sustain our proximity to Christ by pleading to Him and asking Him, for help. The second way in which we sustain our proximity to Christ is hinted at in verse 1 of chapter 3, but it's made explicit in verse 13. Holy brothers and sisters, you who share a heavenly calling. A second way in which we can sustain our proximity to Christ is by staying close to other Christians. I've been doing this full time for 18 years. And I would say this is one of 
the huge challenges of Christians in the local church. We're willing to gather because we're really interacting with stuff going on up here and there's not a whole lot of interaction down there. I think the local church, most of the local churches I've ever been associated with struggle with this point. We want to be devoted to Christ, but we haven't figured out how our connection to one another helps that. A second way we sustain our connection to Christ is by staying close to one another. And there's no way around this. There's no shortcut. There's no alternative way. The New Testament makes it crystal clear that in Christ we are family. That you are my brothers and my sisters in Christ. And we share a common calling. More than that, we need each other. Our level of Christian commitment and devotion and affection is dependent on one another. One of the means that God has ordained to preserve His saints and to keep keep them from drifting are His saints. We help one another from falling. We keep one another from drifting. I vividly remember what it was like to leave home and to head to the University of Western Ontario at the age of 18. I was a newish Christian. I became a Christian around the age of 15. At least that's my best estimate. And so I was a newish Christian and I was struggling at university to come to grips with the number of temptations that were before me and multiplied in a way I'd never experienced before. And there I am at the age of 18, living in a dormitory, not with any kind of supervision, but other 18, 19, 20-year-olds, and so on. And so as I look out here, I see some teenagers. I see some individuals in their 20s. And I want to tell you, I know what you're going through. I know the temptations that beset you. The things that you're struggling with. And I don't want to suggest that I never stumbled or that I never struggled, because I did. But I came through university relatively unscathed because I had many Christians more mature than I looking out for my well-being. To whatever degree I emerged from Christianity as a decent living Christian... I owe to mature Christians who made it their business to track with me. Who made it their business to make sure that I would transition from the bar scene to the Bible study scene. Who made it their business to make sure I did not drift. I had one particular friend. He was always telling me what to do. And he was a friend, a really good friend. And I resented this, but as I look back, in a way he saved my Christianity. Whenever I wanted to go someplace I shouldn't go, I ended up at a Bible study. And then I'd want to go someplace else where I shouldn't go, and I'd end up at a Christian meeting on a Friday night, singing hymns. I had a friend who made it his business to make sure that I connected with Jesus. And I wonder if he had Hebrews 3 in his mind. 
In particular, I wonder if he had Hebrews 3, verse 13 in his mind. Look at verse 13. Exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. What I want you to see, friends, is that we have a sacred responsibility to one another. We have a sacred responsibility to one another. Am I my brother's keeper? Yes. Am I my sister's watcher? Yes. We have a sacred responsibility to one another. I'm my brother's keeper and so are you. Look at this passage, the what. The when and the why are so clearly presented. What are we supposed to do? Exhort one another to consider Jesus. Exhort one another to stay close to Jesus. That's the what. Well, when do we do it? Exhort one another every day. Not once in a while, not occasionally, but exhort one another every single day. Now, I have to think about this in practical terms. We can't have 250 people, each calling 250 people every single day. We wouldn't get anything else done. We'd lose our jobs. We'd We'd be tossed out of our homes because all we did was call people all day long. What do we do? What if... I want to give you a challenge that we can all take on. What if every single person in this room made a commitment... To meaningfully connect with one other Christian every single day. I don't mean the same Christian. But every single day, we made a point of connecting with another believer for the express purpose of building them up and encouraging them in their walk with Christ. If you're an A-type personality, make a list like I will. Put five names on the list. Put ten names on the list. Twenty names on the list. But make a list of people you will intentionally build into in 2016. Why would you do this? Verse 13. So that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We exhort one another every day. To stay close to Jesus because of the real danger of drifting away. My heart breaks as I think of all the people over the course of my 18 years in full-time ministry. My heart breaks at the notion and the remembrance of all those that I know who have drifted away. And I ask myself, what could I have done? What could I have done differently? And I think of some things. But then I ask... It's all of our jobs. If someone's drifting, it's for all of us to get them back and to bring them in. One of the primary ways Jesus keeps us close to him is through the encouragement and exhortation that comes from our brothers and sisters in Christ. Quite simply, I can't do it alone. I can't do the Christian life alone, never mind being your pastor. I can't do the Christian life without the help of other believers. And you can't do it alone either. You need help. And Jesus can help you. Jesus wants to help you. 
Your brothers and sisters in Christ can help you. Because we share a common calling. We share a common need. So if we resolve nothing else today, can we resolve to help one another stay close to Jesus every single day? Amen.